And I'll be reading today from Acts 17, verses 10 through 12. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as you know, if you've been here for the last few weeks, we are beginning a series on the church and its importance and the nature of the church. We're calling it Community of Christ. Sounds uh, oddly similar to our church name, Christ Community Church. Today, though, I want to focus on one part of learning. There's going to be three parts to learning in uh, the church. It's going to be learning from the Word. Uh, next week, Dan's going to talk about learning from tradition. And third week, learning from the Spirit. So as we go forward, uh, we want to see what the characteristics of the early church were. So for instance, if you were to say concerning an individual, one of his or her primary characteristics, this, that, or the other, it would be interesting how that would vary, right? Now there's some occasions where you might say a primary characteristic of a good father is this, a good mother is that. Um, you might say a primary characteristic of a good organization is this, that, or the other. I teach sport history, and I like sports, as you know. And uh, routinely, we talk about certain sport characters. And frequently, what will emerge is a primary characteristic of that great athlete. So one primary characteristic of certain athletes is their speed. Another might be their strength. Another might be their timing. In the case of somebody like Larry Bird, we can't still figure out what his greatness was other than he was great. He was slow, he couldn't jump, and somehow, some way he was sneakily great, right? Um, when it comes to the church itself, what would be the characteristics of a great church? I'd like to suggest that one of the characteristics, or several of them, are actually listed in Acts chapter 2, which we read a couple of weeks ago. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What might that mean? the apostles' teaching. Well, let's remember this. The apostles were the ones who were with Jesus. So we could surmise that the teaching of the apostles was about the things that Jesus said. But we also know from listening to the things that Jesus said that inevitably the teaching of the apostles was about the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. Because Jesus was constantly referring to the Old Testament and helping people understand why he was the Christ, the son of the living God, the Messiah. 
So it's twofold, the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the Old Testament and how they intersect with Jesus. But there's probably a third component of the apostles' teaching, which is correction and righteousness. If you take a look at the epistles, for instance, Paul being the dominant writer in the epistles, you hear a lot of instructions concerning Christian living. So that's probably what it meant when they said they devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles. And the bedrock of it was Scripture itself. Of course, the most prolific teacher was Paul. And in the book of Acts, we read a passage concerning Paul. It was about the Christians at Berea. They were said to be of noble character because they took the word of God very seriously. Now, preceding that, Paul and Silas were in Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, some people who wanted to stir up trouble against Paul and Silas stirred it up in the way of a riot or a mob. They rushed to a house of a man called Jason because they thought Paul and Silas were at Jason's house. Actually, Paul and Silas had gone to Starbucks, but no, uh, they, they weren't there. They missed them, right? They showed up and Paul and Silas weren't there. So you know what they did? They grabbed Jason and other Christ followers, and they dragged them out of the town square and started accusing them of all kinds of things, like hating the emperor and Rome and all that kind of thing. A typical approach to scandalizing faith. Paul, on the other hand, and Silas were whisked away at night from Thessalonica and taken to Berea. What he did at Berea was the same thing he'd done at Thessalonica and other places. He would go into the synagogue, which is where the early believers met, and he would talk with anybody who would listen, shall we say teach, concerning Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures. Another way of hearing it, and it's uh, stated this way in certain versions, is Paul would go and he would argue concerning why Christ was Messiah from the Old Testament scriptures. So he did this at Thessalonica, and he did it at Berea. And at Berea, the text says they accepted his message with joy and they accepted it with joy and they examined daily the scriptures to see whether or not what he said was true. They didn't just allow themselves to be indoctrinated by a famous apostle. They didn't just take his word for it and say, well, if Paul said it, it must be true. They listened to what he said and they studied the scriptures that he was talking about to see whether or not it matched. Or to put it another way, they were in argumentation mode with Paul. What do you think Paul thought of this? He was delighted. Why? Because what they were doing, questioning Paul and examining the scripture was an indication concerning how seriously they were taking the scripture. I've said this before, but let me say it again. Not for one moment does it bother me that at this church we debate the scripture and their application. That's how we learn. 
So he was delighted by this. Furthermore, their interpretation, taken seriously because they investigated, was also true, and you don't get this in Acts, because Paul didn't write Acts, but Paul wrote back to the Thessalonians, and he said to them, I want to thank you. As a matter of fact, he said, I'm rather delighted that you receive the scriptures with joy. Let me, let me read you what he said to the Thessalonians. This was the church that was established under duress. He said, we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. Paul said you received the word of God. And that word of God, for those of you who believe, is active in your life. Paul was actually delighted with the Thessalonians as well as the Bereans because they allowed the word of God to take root. So here's what I want to do. I want to ask this question. Why should we be like them? The Thessalonians and the Bereans. Why should we be like that in this particular day? And I want to invite you, since I am talking about the Bible, to use your Bible to follow along to several passages I'm going to read. If you're 21 and younger, you'll probably look on your phone. But for the rest of you, if you have a Bible, open it. If you don't have one, there's actually one in a chair in front of you. It's a blue Bible. And I want to begin with um, this because. Why should we be like them? Because all Scripture is God-breathed. That comes to us in 2 Timothy 3.16. That was an important verse for me growing up. It was an important verse for me in college and into graduate school. And one day it occurred to me that the easiest way for me to remember where it was and not have to look it up every time uh, back then in a concordance, the easiest way for me to remember was to say it's the second 316, right? Everybody knows John 316. This is the second 316. That's how it jogged my memory because I'm not too smart. So the second 316, how does it go? It goes like this. Oh, by the way, Paul is instructing Timothy, a young pastor, and he said, don't let people despise you because you're young. Think about the word and apply it. Be serious about it. And then he said, for all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Timothy. The scripture, all of it, is God-breathed. You see, my friends, this book is like no other. It's like no other piece of poetry. It's like no other great biography. It's not like any great philosophy. It's God-breathed. 
That's a stunning statement. It is God-breathed. By the way, we find truth, divine truth in all kinds of places. But few of you would say concerning a poem that you love that the poem itself was breathed by God. Most of you who study particular epic intellectuals like philosophers would say that their words are God-breathed. There's music that inspires us. We just sang some of it. Gina did such a wonderful job of leading us in those words. And some of those words reflect Scripture. But none of us would say every single word is God-breathed. Nor would we look at stories which are profound and helpful in identifying the truth and say, the story is God-breathed. But we say that about the Scripture. Even when inspiration is inspirational, like poetry, it's not authoritative. As much as I might admire certain philosophers, because I like philosophy, I've never heard a single philosopher say, you ought to obey Plato. You ought to obey Aristotle. But when we speak of the word of God, we say you ought to obey it. It's that authoritative. What's it good for? Timothy says right here. It's good for teaching. Some translations say it's good for doctrine. In other words, it's good for setting right what is true about God. It's good for that. Use it that way. You want to know God? Investigate the scriptures in order to understand God. It's not the only way, but it's critical. What else is it good for? It's good for correcting and rebuking. Let's put it this way. It's good for setting us straight. It's good for getting us back on the rails. It's good for keeping us from going over the cliff because we are entirely designed in such a way that we will on our own go over the cliff. So it's great for correcting and rebuking. And it's good for teaching or training in righteousness. Um, You know, if you're really serious about physical fitness, unlike me, you would probably get yourself a personal trainer. And you would submit to that personal trainer and he or she would whip you into shape because they're professionals. They know what you can do and what you can't do. If they're good in kinesiology, they understand the body so thoroughly that they won't make you go too far. And if you submit to that trainer, you're going to get places you wouldn't be able to get on your own. Think of that as an image. Paul says to Timothy, submit yourself to the word of God because it is a trainer for righteousness. If you want to be well-equipped, submit yourself to the word of God like you would submit yourself to a personal trainer and allow the word of God to work on you and train you in righteousness. So the first reason we ought to follow the Berean Christians is because 
the word of God is God-breathed. Second reason I'll call your attention to, and if you have a Bible, you'd like to turn to Hebrews. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. Here's the second reason. Because the word of God is sharp like a two-edged sword. This passage was written to a group of beleaguered Christians. They were Christians that were in a minority. They were Christians under the great shadow of Rome and a Caesar. They were Christians who were about to face some hideous persecution, had already gone through some. And the writer of the book of Hebrews says to them, I want you to remember this. The word of God is living and active. For the word of God is alive and active, my version says, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges the the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God ought to characterize who we are because it's like a sharp sword that divides joints and marrow and muscle. I mean, it sounds kind of like a violent image, but how about if we look at it this way? A number of years ago, when I was coming in, I believe it was in February or March, On a Sunday morning, I had no idea what was in front of me, and I slipped on a patch of black ice. And of course, instinctively, you put your hand out, and back then, I weighed at least 15 pounds more than I do now. When I slipped, I reached out my right arm to catch myself to keep my head from hitting the pavement, and all 220 pounds just wrenched my shoulder. I walked in here in a state of excruciating pain and I realized that I couldn't lift my hand. Something's not right. So when I preached, I kept this right arm at my side and used my left the whole time, which was really difficult for me to do. Preached two sermons, went home that afternoon, laid down on the couch, and it became overwhelmingly clear that something bad was wrong. I went in and they had to do surgery. Couldn't even do it orthoscopically because it was so torn up. They cut me open. I saw the scar here. And they did it with a surgeon's knife. And the knife of the surgeon healed me. He put together joints and ligaments and stuff with seven pins, and I recovered, and I could throw a football, and it was the most painful thing that ever happened to me in my life. Think of the Word of God that way. It's like a surgeon's knife. There's a third reason. <laughs> third reason we ought to be like the Berean Christians and take the Word seriously is because it 
never passes away. If you want to look at the words of 1 Peter in chapter 1, you'll find this description. He was talking again to a beleaguered group of Christians that were in a minority in the Roman Empire. They had faced at this point even more persecution than the ones that were addressed to the Hebrews in the Epistle of the Hebrews. And he said, basically, I want you to remember this. Hear his words. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flower, flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. I want you to think of a contrast. You've got a Roman Empire surrounding these very small minority of Christians. With more power than any empire in the world had ever had. They were expansive. They could smash anybody like a bug. And Peter says to them, in effect, I want you to consider power. I want you to look around yourself at this gigantic place called Rome. I want you to consider Caesar himself who might have an ostentatious wreath on his head that's a crown. And I want you to remember this. All of that, including the leader, is like the grass of the field and the flower of the field. You know, many of you have probably gotten flowers for one reason or another. And they come so beautiful. They're in a vase. They delight you. They brighten up your room. And then, bit by bit, the petals fall off and you never see them again. Peter says, that's the world you're living in, my friends. All the glory, the glamour, the power, it's going to fall off like a petal of a flower and it'll be gone. But the thing that lasts forever is the word of God. So where your focus ought to be is pretty simple from the passage. It ought to be on the eternal, not on the temporal. It ought to be on the living, eternal word of God. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. He said, I, I want you to listen to my teachings, and I want you to take them, because if you do, you're taking teachings which are eternal, because my word will never pass away. So what's the conclusion of the matter? Well, if this book is God-breathed, we ought to take it seriously. If you knew about an authoritative source on a particular topic, and you listened to that authoritative source, and then you just turned your back on it, and you said, I don't really care what he says or she says, I'm going to do it my own way. I, I know better than them. 
How foolish would you be? Really foolish. We have the authoritative word of God. And sometimes we read it and we don't like it because this message is too direct. And we turn away from it and we say, I can get along on my own. I'll find my own wisdom. If it's God-breathed, we ought to take it seriously. Second, if it penetrates like a sword or a surgeon's knife, we ought to use it or let it be used on us, right? We ought to allow it to work on us. We ought to read it. We ought to meditate on it. We ought to think on it, even memorize it. And let it cut right to the heart. Because it does that in a way that nothing else does. As a matter of fact, we ought to allow it to work on others. The Word of God has stood for thousands of years. And it's transformed people and it's changed their hearts. There's a a particular discipline among Christians is called apologetics, which is the defense of the faith. And part of that defense of the faith has often been the defense of the scripture, that it's reliable and it's true. I've spent more time than I care to admit looking at all that stuff. And I have real appreciation for what I learned. I do believe this text is reliable, but that's not where I'm going. Where I'm going is this. The text is alive and powerful. And actually, I don't need to defend it. All I need to do, and you need to do, is to speak it. A really famous preacher from England, his name was Charles Spurgeon. He spoke about this. He was kind of pushing back on all those people who thought they had to defend everything in the Bible. And here's what he said. The word of God can take care of itself and will do so if we preach it and cease defending it. You see that lion over there? Of course, there wasn't a real lion in the congregation. They've caged him for his preservation, shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See how a band of armed men have gathered together to protect the lion? These mighty men are intent upon defending a lion. Oh, fools and slow of heart. Open that door and let the Lord of the forest come forth. D.L. Moody, at least as attributed to him, came up with his own very concise version of that. He said, how do you defend the Bible? The way you defend a lion, you just let it out of its cage. It'll be fine. Do you or I need to defend the Bible? No. We just need to believe it. 
and let it do its work. It will. It has for thousands of years. Do you need to have all the answers when you're talking to somebody or evangelizing? No. Just allow the word of God to do its work. It has for thousands of years. The third reason um, that we ought to be like the Bereans is because if it's eternal, our life ought to be built on it. You want to build on something that's not eternal? I don't. I want the firmest foundation I can have. And here's the thing. Fashions come and go, right? I mean, some of us can hardly keep up with it. I can't keep up with fashion. I I hear that the 90s are back in. Any of you hear that? Like clothing from the 90s? Yeah. I think I still have some of those clothes, so I might just pull them out. Um, I, the, the point is, I, I just like, what? I, I teach over at IU, and every once in a while, I'll see somebody coming across campus. I think, what happened? You know, like, I think that's like clothes from way back when. And sure enough, it is. Right? And so the other day, I was getting a, given a compliment. said, man, those are cool tennis shoes. You know, they're not dad shoes. Dad shoes? What? what? Come on. I wear shoes because they feel good. Right? Uh, I can't keep up with fashion. I happen to, by mistake, be fashionable that day. Um, fashions are like that with clothing, but it's far beyond that, right? Fashion is like that when it comes to things like the church, too. If you were like Dan and John and me, you read stuff about the church and what's the newest thing? What's the greatest brand? how you ought to do it to get attention. I I think there's some really good things in there, but that's not the substance of it. Because fashions come and go. The word of God stands forever. Flamboyant personalities that are Christian leaders, they come and go too. But the word of God stands forever. I didn't do it but I wanted to. I wanted to put a slide up there with names of flamboyant Christian teachers who have all but disappeared and not because they're dead. They come and go. The word of God stands forever. Innovative techniques are attractive but they're not forever. Only the word of God stands forever. One time Jesus gave a parable about a house and foundations. You may remember it's in Matthew chapter 27. And he said, use my teaching and build the foundation of your life upon my teaching because it's a firm foundation. And he gave the illustration of a man who built on a rock and the rains came and the house stood. And then another man built his house on sand and the rains came and of course it was washed away. Built on a firm foundation. As I was thinking about that this week, uh, a song came to mind. It's a really old, distinguished hymn. It goes like this. I'm actually going to sing it, okay? If you know the motions, I'm going to sing along, you can. The wise man built his house upon the rock. 
The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And the rains came tumbling down. The rains came down as the floods came up. The rains came down as the floods came up. The rains came down as the floods came up. And the house on the rock stood firm. The foolish man. Well, the foolish man built his house upon the sand. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. And the rains came tumbling down. And the rains came down and the floods went up. The rains came down and the floods went up. The rains came down and the floods went up. And the house on the sand went flat. When I was a kid, we used to sing that Sunday school, I think, every day. When we got to the end, we would sing... The house on the sand, and we changed it a little bit. The house on the sand went splat. Just seemed appropriate. We've got a foundation to build on. It's the Word of God. Let's stand on it. Actually, it seems kind of odd, but will you stand up with me? Some of you might know this. I've told the story before. Some of you may not. You're literally standing on the Word of God. Because when we were in the process of building this church, before we put the carpet down, after two services in the old sanctuary, we invited everybody to come over. We went underneath the yellow tape. We had... Everybody write their favorite Bible verse on the ground, the concrete. It's a beautiful picture. Little kids all over the place writing their favorite verse. I wrote my favorite verse, and I think it's over there somewhere where Marietta is standing. I joked last service. That's probably why she sings so beautifully. But anyway. (laughs) Everybody wrote their favorite verse, and then we covered it up with carpet. And the idea was that we're standing on the Word of God. That's the only place to be as a church, standing on the Word of God. So you make a commitment with me that a chief characteristic of Christ's community church will always be that we stand on the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, for your word. We thank you that it's God-breathed. It's just not normal. We thank you that it's sharp like a two-edged sword, and it's alive. It's got a life of its own, and the reason it does is because the very word of God, Jesus Christ, empowers it through the Spirit. And we thank you that this word of God will never pass away. So, Lord, if we believe it, may we commit ourselves to it as a church and as individuals. May we stand on the word of God, which is an eternal foundation. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen.